All right, folks. Good morning. Good morning to everybody at home. I don't know if we got the cameras up. I guess we do. All right. Settle down, people. Come on. Quit, quit having fun and enjoying each other. What's, what's up with that? Come on. Oh, it's good to be with you this morning. It really is. We are in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 12 this morning. I encourage you to follow along just to make sure I'm not pitching something that actually isn't in the Word. So it's important. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for Christ. We thank you for the cross and all that that means and is. Such a gift. Our salvation is such a gift. And it's the kind of gift that we can't keep to ourselves. It's the kind of gift that we just have to share because it gets better and better when we do share. And I pray this morning that that sense of mission that you've called us to would grow and deepen in our hearts. That your gospel would spread throughout the nations. And we ask this in Jesus' name. For your glory. Amen. All right. So have you ever tried something new and had such an amazing experience that you couldn't help but tell people about it? And you couldn't help but encourage them to experience that themselves? Maybe it was like a spectacular train ride to go see the fall colors. Sorry, I'm a train guy. I've got to work in something like that. Or maybe it was like a local eatery, right? Where you've had like the best ice cream or coffee or bratwurst that you've ever tasted. Yeah, Oktoberfest, right? Maybe it was an encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Now, most of us don't get to experience what Paul did on that road to Damascus when we repent and believe. But if our belief is genuine, we should be growing in our appreciation of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. It's part of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And the more we appreciate who Jesus is, the more eager we should be to share him in word and deed with others who don't know him as their Lord and Savior, to spread the gospel. And our motivations for spreading the gospel should be just like Paul's. It should come from our love for Christ and our desire to see him glorified by more and more people. And it should come from our love for people, wanting them to experience the joy, the love, the peace, and the forgiveness that can only come from Jesus. Now, many of us have preconceived ideas of what spreading the gospel looks like. You know, the street evangelist, the Billy Graham or the Harvest Crusade, the missionary in some remote jungle or remote street in Eastern Europe. And of course, those means of spreading the gospel have their place. But what we see in today's passage is that God often employs unusual means to spread the gospel. Those unusual means are helpful because they often defy how things are expected to work in the world. And that glorifies God. And they're helpful because they inspire us to stand firm in sharing the gospel when both external 
and internal forces would seek to stop its spread. And so with that, let's turn to Philippians chapter 1 and start in at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and in the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that, from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. So, let's take a closer look at that opening verse. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't memorized the book of Acts. And if you haven't, let's, uh, let's take a quick history lesson. So Paul is writing while he's incarcerated in Rome. And of course, after spending years bringing the gospel to the Gentiles in various cities around the Mediterranean Sea, he ran afoul of the Jewish leaders, and he was arrested in Jerusalem. When the legal proceedings seemed to be going sideways, he exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal his case directly to Caesar. 
Many commentators believe this eventually led to Paul being held under house arrest in Rome while awaiting his court date with Caesar. And his arrest would have been managed by the king's personal guard, which would have been actually quite a large group of soldiers at that time. And the soldiers would have rotated through four-hour shifts of being chained to Paul as part of their guard duty. Now, of course, Paul being Paul, you can imagine that each soldier would have gotten an earful of Jesus for those four hours. And if you think of Paul's perilous journey to Rome, right? There was an attempt on his life early on by the Jews. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a poisonous snake. It would have also been made clear that he was there because Christ wanted him there. Now, the Caesar or the emperor of the time was a fellow named Nero, not really a friend to Christians. And not only did the Romans greatly favor the worship of multiple gods, and they actually suspected anybody only who worshiped one god, but they included their emperor as having a godlike status. So for the loyal imperial guard that was guarding Paul, Talk of Jesus as Lord would have been heretical. And here's the unusual part. The expected outcome of Paul being confined under house arrest, under the care of the ultra-loyal imperial guard, would have been to halt the spread of the gospel. Instead, we read it advanced the gospel, since Paul was able to share it with the guard and their associates. Now, how often as an evangelist do you have the opportunity to share Jesus with those who are really close to an important world leader? Now, I don't know about you, but Paul's circumstances weren't something that that I would have, and probably you as well, would have chosen for yourself. But God used those circumstances to spread the gospel right under the nose of the most powerful human leader of that time. That's quite unusual. And the application for us in that is to not bemoan the circumstances we find ourselves in, but to look, to actively look for opportunities to share the gospel in those circumstances. Now, show of hands, this is an easy one. How many of us would prefer to not go to prison, right? Should be everybody, I would hope. (laughs) And usually, most of the time, there's a pretty easy way to do that, right? Don't break the law. Now, in Paul's case, the Jewish leaders wanted to get him to stop evangelizing, and they used the law to try and shut him up. They figured if he was in prison, he wouldn't be so disruptive, you know, this gospel thing he's been sharing. Apparently, God had other things in mind. The next part of this passage reads like this, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Say, what? I mean, that's quite unusual, right? Instead of staying quiet out of the fear of being imprisoned, right? The Roman Christians were emboldened as they saw Paul boldly proclaiming the gospel to the guards and many of the guards coming to faith in Christ. Now keep this idea about boldly speaking the word in mind. We'll come back to it later. Let's continue. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Huh? That's kind of a little bit of a weird one. With a quick read, that even seems a little bit counterintuitive. In fact, this is the part of the passage that actually got me thinking about God working in unusual ways, because this is pretty unusual. Because Paul's rejoicing over somebody preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. That's kind of weird. But we can't disconnect these verses from their context. See, remember that Paul is talking about brothers. He introduced that in verse 16. And Paul uses this term of brothers in his writings to refer to both male and female believers. So these aren't cult leaders preaching a different gospel. They would seem to be genuine believers who happen to be struggling with the sin of selfish ambition. Paul's going to speak to them directly in chapter 2 with these words, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Now we know from Paul's other writings that he'd be the first to call someone out for proclaiming a gospel other than salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, standing on the word of God alone and to the glory of God alone. So obviously these brothers aren't doing that. And what Paul is saying in essence is that even if their underlying heart motives aren't 100% pure, they are still proclaiming the risen Christ and thus are helping to spread the gospel. Paul has enough faith that the Holy Spirit will draw the elect in and sanctify them, that he isn't overly concerned about who the Spirit uses to spread the good news. And to be frank, that's a bit of a challenge for us in Reformed circles. We often get so busy defending doctrine that we neglect the Great Commission. And worse, sometimes we turn our noses up at the church down the street who may not agree with us on all five points of Calvinism, but may be doing a better job of loving their neighbors. It's a both-and proposition, not one or the other, folks. Let's not do that. Paul now switches gears. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, 
so that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, this is another situation where knowing something about the original languages and their use by an author is helpful. See, the Greek word translated as deliverance here is soteria. And it can mean either a physical or a spiritual deliverance or rescue. However, Paul's writings consistently use it in a spiritual context. And typically one referring to that time when we're going to stand before the judgment seat. Now, what comes into view here is Paul's singular focus of honoring Christ. In the preceding verse, it was clear that Paul didn't care if others were trying to compete with him for the title of most souls won in Rome, right? He just wanted to see those souls won. Paul expands on that here in revealing that whether his trial ends in death or his release, he wants to honor Christ above all. If he's released, he can continue his apostolic work of sharing the gospel, planting churches, and raising up leaders. If he's put to death, he knows he will be with Christ. And what could be better than that? Now, one other point of confusion could arise from the the translated word choose. That same Greek word can be translated as prefer. And prefer might seem to be a little bit more appropriate because Paul doesn't exactly have a choice between door number one and door number two here. He's been on the mission field for 25 or more years at this point. He's endured beatings, multiple imprisonments, slander, and all sorts of manifestations of hate. He's more than happy to go home. And yet, he's torn because there's still so many who need to hear the gospel and be discipled in the faith. And here's the unusual part. Notice that he isn't at all concerned about the outcome of the trial. He knows that it benefits him and the kingdom either way. And how many of us can honestly say that our hearts are in such a place? What he is concerned about is that he finishes the race well, whichever way it turns out. In fact, he expresses confidence that through both the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart, and the prayers of his friends in Philippi, that he will be able to finish well. Now the application for us in this should be to double down on our praying for each other. And at that in an unusual way. It's not unusual for us to pray for each other when we're sick or when we're facing some sort of challenge at work or at school or or for some other need. But how many of us pray for each other that we will honor God in our daily lives and be bold in sharing the gospel that we might finish well? Paul continues. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. 
For it has been granted to you, granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, one of the most common barriers to spreading and sharing the gospel is the manner of life of Christians. Sadly, it's not unusual for people who call themselves Christians to lie when it's convenient, to cheat on their taxes or their spouse, to only show love for neighbor when it suits their purposes, to leave the sharing of the gospel to missionaries. I could go on. Why would an unbeliever be at all interested in Jesus if his followers don't demonstrate Jesus' character in their lives? If the life of the Christian is only marked by going to church for two hours on the occasional Sunday, a fish on the car, and a few biblical pleasantries hanging on the wall, something is wrong. No wonder we are so often called hypocrites. And no wonder we don't prioritize sharing the gospel. Because if we aren't living a life worthy of the gospel, a life which increasingly reflects the character of Christ and appreciates his surpassing worth, then our actions show that we really don't believe the gospel. Our actions and our words have to reflect Christ. 1 Corinthians 10 puts it this way, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I hate to break it to you folks, but one of the ways you know you're living the gospel life is that you will suffer when you're doing things to advance the gospel. But if you truly understand the truth of the gospel and the surpassing worth of Christ, you can't help but to advance it in whatever ways God has gifted you to do that. And what joy there is to be part of that. And while we as individuals are called to live a Christ-like life, that life is to be lived walking side by side with our brothers and sisters. We need, need the prayers and the support and the encouragement of those experiencing the same sort of opposition. Just like Paul needed those things from the Philippians. That sort of mutual support and seeing how being faithful in sharing the gospel glorifies God by growing the kingdom. That's what inspired the Roman Christians to boldly proclaim the gospel as we discussed earlier. It's a tremendously joyful thing to help others find their way to Christ. I'm sure many of you have experienced that privilege. Now, here's another shocker for you. We may differ on many things as individuals in a community of believers. Maybe secondary and tertiary matters of scripture. We certainly differ in spiritual maturity, as Paul highlighted in verse 15. But what should unite us with one spirit and one mind is spreading the gospel. 
The more we put aside our own interests in the service of the gospel, the more we will be united. And just in case you don't know this, when we're talking about the gospel in this way, we're talking about the good news that, this is a four-point version of the gospel, there is an infinitely holy God who created all things. And we could go on and on about all of his other attributes too, his omnipotence, and Jason's really good at that. That we humans have sinned and are thus enemies of God. Though we were created to enjoy and worship him forever. And that sin, our sin, comes with an infinite penalty that we finite creatures can't repay on our own. And that God sent his only son, Jesus, who is the only one capable of paying for our sins to bear that penalty that we deserve. And the fourth point, Jesus will pay for our sins, enabling us to enjoy and worship our creator as we were meant to, if we repent of our sins and believe in him. Talk about unusual, right? That God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us so that our wayward hearts could experience his eternal love instead of his internal wrath, which we deserve. He saved us from hell. Any tortures or torments of man, they're temporary. Hell is eternal punishment. Think about that. Eternal punishment. And that brings us to another hard application question for us to consider this morning. What holds us back from sharing the gospel? I mentioned at the beginning that there are both external and internal forces that we need to stand firm against, which would seek to halt the spread of the gospel. In considering external forces, we have to think about that which is, of course, outside of our own hearts. And it's true that even today, in some parts of the world, there are people who will kill you for being a Christian. And like Paul, there are parts of this world where you can be thrown in prison for spreading the gospel. There are people who will mock you. There are people who will yell at you. Some of your friends or family members will disown you. These are very real things that oppose the spread of the gospel. These are just a few external and remember temporary things that may try to hold us back from spreading the gospel. Jesus offered this perspective in Matthew. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body, soul and body in hell. Now in considering internal forces, we have to look at what's inside our hearts. Things that hold us back in our hearts can be related to past traumas or lack of spiritual maturity and may even be coupled to some of those external forces that we just talked about. We may fear death or pain or being ostracized or humiliated. We may enjoy our comfortable life too much. These are just a few internal things that may try to hold us back from spreading the gospel. 
And here's what we have to remember to help us stand firm. And what is the basis for Paul's boldness? Jesus conquered sin and death and brought everlasting life, joy, and love in their place to those who believe in him. He faced utter humiliation on the cross. He was opposed by politicians and religious leaders and ordinary people. All the temporary things we fear, whether internal or external, he faced and conquered. Paul was so convinced of this that he lived his life with a remarkable gospel focus. And he wasn't foolish or reckless in living out and sharing his faith before the world. But he was bold in proclaiming the gospel in word and deed. His physical life held value to him in as much as it pointed to Christ. And while he didn't tempt death or seek out trouble in the way he lived, he didn't let man's threats of death and punishment deter him from his apostolic mission. Listen to these words from Peter. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And this gives us some more tough questions to ask of ourselves. Do we view our circumstances in light of the advance of the gospel? Do we view our gifts and our blessings and even our chains as means to advance the gospel? At the end of the day, what I see Paul trying to show us is that the biggest threat to spreading the gospel isn't from outside the church. It comes from Christians who keep the gospel to themselves. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, there's so much work to do in our hearts, but we know your Holy Spirit is there to do it, drawing us closer to you, sanctifying us, helping us to more and more understand the surpassing worth of Christ. Help us to cast aside things that might hold us back from sharing your gospel with others. So many people so desperately need your love and your forgiveness. Let's not keep that light under a jar. Whatever our circumstances in life, whether we're young or old, in school or at work or at home, there are things that we can be doing to advance your gospel. And those things may be unusual. They may look unusual. But may we look for ways to advance your gospel in whatever circumstances we are in. To your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.